Welcome to Bass Talk with Hagen and Hayes. Today's topic is the Eccles Sonata. Good afternoon, Susan. How are you? I'm good, David. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. And how did you first come across the Eccles Sonata? Well, the Eccles Sonata I learned as a student, uh, right as I was about to learn how to play in thumb position. Notice how I said about to learn how to. I didn't quite <laughs> know it yet. And... You know, it has a little bit of thumb position and a lot of that transition in and out mm. of thumb position. And the first movement was the first thing I learned, obviously. And I thought it was beautiful, except for the parts where I had to transition in and out of thumb position, which just sounded like a dying cow. And <laughs> I remember thinking, there's got to be a better way to do this. <laughs> but I'm trying to remember how old I was. I was maybe in the ninth grade, maybe in the eighth grade. So probably like 13, 14 years mm. old. Now, how about you? When did you come across it? Um, not until I was about 17. Cause I didn't start playing till I was 13, 14. Right. And uh, so, I, yeah, I was just learning to play in thumb position. So I did the first movement mm -hmm. and I played it in a festival, a, a competitive festival. Me too. Um, but one of the, um, yeah, the first solo I ever did. And one of the rules is you weren't allowed to play from photocopies. Uh, and I only had a photocopy um, because my teacher, well, I hadn't bought it and my teacher hadn't told me. So I, I just had this photocopy. So I had to try and learn it from memory mm. and read over the, the shoulder of the pianist. Oh, it there you go. Yeah, so it didn't look particularly professional, if I'm honest. <laughs> and I had a, a memory lapse as well. Oh. And it's, yeah, I, so I, I didn't I didn't win, obviously. But that was the first time I played it. But I, I loved it from the start. And certainly that first movement. Yeah, it's absolutely oh, yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, what's interesting is I had to do it for like a an orchestra, little like a district competition mm. within the state of Massachusetts where I grew up, and we had to do just the first movement. Mm. And my teacher said, "Oh well, why don't we go on and learn the second movement?" I said, "Okay, I did." And I learned the third movement, and then she sort of became disinterested in the piece. I never learned the fourth movement. Until I went to teach it years later, and I was like, "Oh right, there's a fourth movement. I never, I've never learned it, but let me teach it to this student." And and um, I think I saw why she didn't want to teach it to me. It just mm -hmm. wasn't it wasn't up her alley, really. Um, and I'd probably been on the piece for quite a long time, and she probably wanted to bring me somewhere else musically. Um, but I I still think that that first movement is quite lovely. I really mm -hmm. do. Um, I don't know how you approach it with your students, but when I'm teaching it, I like to give my students the tools of being able to play in thumb position and being able to get from the danger zone to thumb position mm. and back before I give them the piece. Because for me, that piece was how I learned to do that. Mm. And I found it to be, it wasn't like it was stressful, but maybe discouraging at times because it would just sound god awful. <laughs> and <laughs> I think if I I can teach the students to make the coming down the G mm. um, easily, then they they get more excited about the piece rather than discouraged. I think I was taught it in the same way as you. I yeah. think I was taught to play the piece and learn the the technique at the same time. Yeah. So nowadays my students are learning to move in and out of thumb position anyway. Right. Um, so I, I never even think about the technique of, of doing it because they're doing it all the time. Um, but I, my teacher, was, her second teacher was a man called Lawrence Gray. And he was a really great teacher. I really loved 
lessons with him. And he was the one who introduced me to lots of different repertoire, uh, Edward Nanny's concerto and all these things from the Paris Conservatoire. And so I did all four movements with him. Nice. Um, and I still got all the fingerings in the in the part. I still got the, you know, from uh, 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's still, yeah, I still love it. Each, each movement has something different. It, and it's interesting as a professional or as a student, um, how there's a lot to learn technically as a student. There but is. as a musician, there's so much there musically as well. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I think it's a great sonata. I, I think it's probably played too much, but I can understand why it is. I think it's played a lot. And I'm not sure that, well, you'll know better than I, how many other pieces there are that teach the same types of, of things like the third movement. It's beautiful. It's lyrical. Mm. You have to deal with the difference between triplets and duplets mm. um, and, you know, major and minor. And it's, you know, just, just sort of more of an emotional movement. The second movement has, you know, chords and fast notes and, you know, all these patterns, you know, um, sequences really. Mm. And it, it's great. And I've had trouble finding another piece to put in its place. I think that's the problem because it works. And there aren't many transcribed uh, violin cello sonatas of that period right. which work as well because they're just moving into that nice register, that nice singing register. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and it's it's interesting for an audience because it's, it's out of half position. It's nice to play uh, for the student or the, the bass player. And it's very easy on the ear. I remember Gary Carr always used to start every recital with a Baroque, a Baroque sonata. And often it would be the echoes. And I can understand why. You know, it's a beautiful 10-minute start to a program. Right, right. It is. And it's very funny because I hear it played. And I was taught it this way, too. Um, despite it being a Baroque sonata, I hear it played very romantically often. Mm. You know, really lush and a couple of subtle, tasteful, but slides that you probably mm. never would have done in the Baroque time period. Um, and so then I was taught, and I, I'd love to teach this at Berkeley, uh, in the first and third movements when there's repeats, you go back and use what I would call ornamentation, mm, but at yes. Berkeley, I call it Berkeleyfication because <laughs> for me, and I did this with the Vivaldi sonatas when I was in college, you know, a repeat in those days wouldn't have been played exactly the same, no. right? There'd have been a difference. So I think it's a really good way for any type of player to learn how to express themselves by, you know, mm. the chords will stay the same, but if for a classical player, maybe, add a run, add a trill, mm. add a turn, add a lower neighbor, any sort of a pagetura. Mm -hmm. um, but I sometimes make my jazz students or my bluegrass students put it into their language. Mm. Even if it means they chuck their bow quickly, I call it the chuck and pluck when they're at Berkeley. <laughs> chuck the bow in their quiver and, and do some sort of pizzicato thing. Um, yeah. But I encourage Nowadays, I encourage creativity. I mean, when I was a student, it was like, here are the seven flavors of ornaments you can use, mm. and, and that's all you can do. And now, do you have students use ornamentation on the repeats? All the time, yes. And I, I, often I'll play them the uh, version I, I play, um, and then it's up to them what they want to do. It, it's, it should be personal, because I think in the Baroque times, every player, would, it was just part of their armory. They yes. knew how to improvise and... and yeah ornament these things elaborate and they would have just done it anyway uh, you're saying about no slides uh, my teacher uh, Franjo Poshta was really hot on that no slides in Baroque 
he wouldn't have that at all so that one I've kept and with my students but I I think sometimes it's played romantically because the edition we all use is quite romantic yeah Um, and we all think it's Fred Zimmerman's edition in fact the bass part is but the edition is by Alfred Moffat and he was a Scottish composer um and he, he I think died about 1950 and he was asked by a publishing company in London to edit um, lots of these old sonatas. So he he researched all these old Baroque sonatas, early classical sonatas um, and wrote accompaniments for them. Okay. Um, and I, th- I think the Eccles one, I think it was first published in 1905. Oh, wow. So that's why it's quite, it's quite romantic because in those days the um, elaboration of the the the, the grand bass the uh, figured bass yeah. was quite romantic. Sure, um, so I, I can quite understand how uh, the the solo bass line will match the 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 accompaniment. Having said that, I still think it's a really nice accompaniment. I know it's, it is. It's not, it's not baroque. It's not urtex. It's not anything, but it's really quite lovely. I have to say. I also like that I can play it. <laughs> it's, you know, I feel like it's one of those accompaniments that isn't too hard for, for yes. a teacher to be able to play. Yeah. So I love being able to play the accompaniment. And in my in my office at Berkeley, my back is towards the, the players when, mm. when I'm accompanying them. It's just the only way we fit in the room. Um, but it's a shiny black piano and I told yes. you I can kind of sneak a peek and, and really see their left hands. Um, but I, I love being able to play whether I'm playing bass or playing piano with my students. I feel like it's really helpful. Um, yes. But I, I love that this accompaniment is accessible to mm. a teacher. It's not so hard that you just can't do it. And I think it's really helpful for the students too. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't taught it for years. And then I, I taught one of my ex-students last week. And she's doing the middle two movements. Ah. And it's so nice to come back to it. It's it's yeah. it's not a piece I teach because I think if pupils have to do auditions or things, the panels get so fed up of hearing and oh, um, yeah. say often they want a Baroque sonata, but they, they don't want the Eccles because everyone plays Eccles. So I always try and be really creative in what I find for my students. What will you do in lieu of that? Um well there's there's a nice handle concerto. Um, which oboe concerto, which was originally arranged by Simandl. Okay, yes. And um, I've I've done a new edition of that one, and I really love that. It's really really nice music, much more technical than the Eccles. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then George Speed has done some new editions of the Vivaldi, right? Sonatas. He's put them in new keys, which puts them into a nice solo register. And uh, yep. so my students have been have played some of those. But that yes. that's the difficulty, you know. Um, the Gamberson art is by by Bach. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, another student played the. I don't know. I can't remember which movements. Maybe it was the whole thing. I, I can't remember. I think Sonata Number Two, in D Major, which is lovely. It's a really nice sonata. But it's it's difficult to find uh, Baroque repertoire which is accessible, isn't it? Which it is, is. Not, not too too challenging. Yeah, I'll have some fairly new to the double bass students that very proficient electric bass players that want to become doublers and and they'll come to my to lessons with me and they'll say i want to play the bach first cello suite and i'm like okay we can, we gotta get you there we can't do that this week so you know we need some stepping stones and but i know you know the students a lot of times at, at berkeley love the baroque time period as far as mm-hmm. music goes and i think um 
I think part of it is that it's, you know, there's logic, there's symmetry, mm. there's, um, it's accessible to the listener. But I think sometimes it's a lot harder for a double bass player than mm. it sounds like it's going to be. And so they're surprised. Mm. Um, every now and then I'll have a student, it's not frequent, but a student will go rogue and will be like, I know you told me not to learn this yet, but I started to work on it. And then they pause. This has happened twice. It's really hard. <laughs> You're right. I'm not ready for this. <laughs> And um, that's when I'll pull out of a Vivaldi or an Eccles, um, no, or or an easy Bach piece, mm, yes. um, it just to let them have a mm. piece in the time period they're liking. But then I'm a little bit of a sucker for the Romantic time period, so then I'll pull <laughs> out something from that and and introduce them to a composer that maybe they don't know. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that I think the Eccles is a really great piece it teaches so much um there was a time period before i taught at berkeley when um i taught this piece a lot and i mm. had a, a student's mom who was she was a professional violinist and she came into the lesson one day and she said you said to my my son that you're teaching him the Eccles sonata i said yes i am she said mm. This was written for for violin, and his name is Henri Eclet. I don't want you saying the wrong thing to my son. And I said, okay. Um, as an American, we butcher people's names without knowing it. And after that point, I was like, oh my god, what do I call him? How do I pronounce his name? I started to get very paranoid. So you call him Eccles because he was English. See, but he, but he <laughs> worked. He worked in France. And and I think he he died in Paris. He did, and and I had said to this to this woman, I I wanted to be very careful with her, but I said to her, I believe he's actually English, and she said, mm. No, 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 he's French. I said, I don't think so. I said, I think he's English. I said, I, I know that he spent time in France. Mm. I said, but I am pretty sure his name is Henry Eccles. But if you he's, want he's, me to, he's from I'll a family of musicians. His, his father was Som, uh, Solomon Eccles, right? Um, and his brother, who was more famous, was John Eccles, who was quite famous in his day. And, and there was a story that that Henry um, didn't think he was getting a, a fair crack of the whip in England, so he ah. ended up in in, in Paris. Um, and I think I think he, he did much better there. I think he had a, a good career. And I think we only know him because of these 12 sonatas for violin. Um, so Alfred Moffat must have found this, this sonata and, and created addition. Maybe it was for violin, maybe it's for cello. I, I know it's played on the viola quite a lot. Yes. I, I think that, that a lot of instruments love it. Yeah, mm, I think so. So, and I, I think the first time we played it, um, was uh, Kuzovitsky. I think he was the one. I, I think in his collection, there's a hand-copied version of the sonata, I think. Okay. But the but I think, as I say, the uh, Fred Zimmerman edition from IMC is really just based on the, the 1905 edition. Okay. Um, and the bass, so the bass part was new, and the uh, I think the piano part is probably the, the same one for mm -hmm. cello or violin. But it, it, it works really well, so I... I can't see much point in changing. I have found a new a new piano accompaniment, which is really it's different. Oh, tell me about it. So, I, well, I'm not going to say too much until I've I've done it. <laughs> but it's actually really quite nice, and it's it's completely different to this one. Okay. Um, and and I, as far as I can see, they're both really good editions, the Moffat and this this other one. 
and, and they both bring something different to the table. Mm. So still this this beautiful music, but with just you know slightly different colours. And I thought that might be interesting to do a new editions for both solo and orchestral tuning. Mm, so we should be keeping our eyes peeled for that. You should be. You should be. <laughs> now here's the big question. Yes. Will I be able to play the piano part? Yes, I think so. I think they're both quite accessible. Good. And I and I think the the other version is maybe a little more baroque than the the Moffat. That's which, good. Mm, but it, it's it's. I don't really understand about uh, being too a text because we're playing playing it on the wrong instrument right. in the wrong tuning with the wrong strings at the wrong pitch. Um, <laughs> Other so, than that, it's perfect. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'm, I'm really not too worried. Um, so even though the 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 Moffat accompaniment is is quite quite romantic, I think it's quite lovely actually. Yeah, I, it's very pretty. Yeah, I think he did a very good job, and there's a reason why it survived all these years. Yes. Maybe it's quite yeah. good. Yeah. 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 I think that happens, <laughs> you know, and, and as we both said, you have to look for something else that, that would replace it. But I kind of like the Baroque and romantic <laughs> mixture that has happened with this piece because yes. it, it has the, the brain of a Baroque composer. But every now and then we just sort of romanticize how it sounds a little bit. It's kind of a nice combo. But as we both know, I am kind of drawn to the romantic style <laughs> of play anyway. So, um, yeah. The one thing in the first movement is the the bass notes are all doubled. They're all octaves. Yes. And I have to say, when I play for my students, I lose the bottom octave. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It just clears up the piano part a little bit. So it's a little bit less romantic. Yep, yep. Um, and I think that really helps with the textures. Otherwise, everything is in that that low register. True. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. Um, I do love that bottom note, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my mom, my mom was a piano teacher, and when I was a baby, I'd kind of crawl around. the The piano studio was yes. attached to our house, and so I'd be crawling around in the room where she was teaching. And I would, oh, she had a, a beautiful Steinway piano, mm. and I would sit up against the back leg of it, and it was near the bass <laughs> notes. And I, I mean, even as like you know, this is when I was a year old, I loved the vibrations of the lowest notes on the piano. My mom said she knew I was going to end up playing the bass because I was always it's just sort of curled up against that leg of the piano because that was the one that vibrated with the bass notes and um a little bit quirky but <laughs> so when i play that piece i sometimes will keep the bottom note and drop the upper note of the octave all right yeah which really isn't good but it's just you know <laughs> there's no musical explanation for it it's more like susan likes this <laughs> but i've paid for all the notes on the piano i may as well use them Exactly. There's 88 of them. I'm not going to skip any of them. Well, maybe the top octave that doesn't get played as frequently. <laughs> but I, I think it's nice because it is accessible as a teaching piece. Yeah. And yeah. also, many of the times we play to an audience, they've never heard a bass before. Right. And to play something like this, which is is lyrical, a bit of virtuosity in there, um, the whole thing only lasts 10 minutes, give or take. Um, right. So it, it's really, there's nothing there to frighten the horses as they used to say. Yes. Everybody, it's a win-win, I think, with this piece. I think it is too. And and as you said, I could perform it, you could perform it, and it wouldn't feel like, oh, you're playing a kid's piece. Mm. 
you know, and there's not a, a ton of the pieces that I learned growing up. Oh, there's not a lot of them that my teachers would have performed in a recital. Mm. Um, even my teacher, Ed Barker, when I was studying the Vivaldi third sonata with him, he put it on a recital. I was so excited. I went to the recital. He played the whole thing up an octave and I felt like such an idiot. <laughs> I was like, you know, here I am struggling with it down an octave and he just sort of whipped it off all, it was, I was all up in thumb position and, and he really, he really went to town with it. There was a harpsichord, there was a cellist, you know, playing, playing yes. the basso. Yeah. And, and he played it in solo tuning and it was all the stuff that I thought, wow, I am such an idiot. Look <laughs> at what he's doing with this piece. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, would I perform a Vivaldi sonata in, in a recital now? Not sure that I would, but I still think the echoes would hold up nicely. I think the key works really well on bass because it's yes. G minor. He gives us the open strings and the harmonic, so there's a resonance there. Right. And that, for bass, that's a really good thing. It's also moving into that nice sort of low solo register, which is quite nice. And it's, it's yeah. a register where you can really sing and where you can really show what the bass is about. It's not just uh, the, the low notes. It, it has has those as well, which is, is important. Um, but it just takes you into the, the, the middle register, which is, is really nice. Right. And, and it's great for a student who's not quite ready for the upper register yet, mm. uh, but they feel pretty sophisticated because, you know, you're going a little bit into thumb position and you're hearing how beautiful the bass can sound. But the one thing I'm going to do with my new editions um, is lose tenor clef, if at all possible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You that, know, that's how I learned tenor clef with that piece. Me too. Like, me yeah. too. Now that you mentioned that, that's exactly what I did. And it's funny because when I first started teaching at Berkeley, I gave this to a student and he looked at me and he said, I don't, I don't know this clef. And he just, he turned ashen. He was so nervous. <laughs> and I said, okay, so let's learn tenor clef. And he said, oh, um, what if I just transcribed it and just put it entirely in either bass clef or treble clef? I can play both of those. And I gave, I gave him a couple of weeks with it in tenor clef, but I knew that he had a bit of a learning disability. Mm. And I said to him, you know what? What if you transcribe it, put it in, I have to check it, make sure you didn't make any mistakes. Cause if you're not great with tenor clef, I don't know you're <laughs> going to write it right. And he did get a few notes wrong, but he fixed them very quickly. Um, and so I have just sort of, it's always oh, typeset very poorly, but it's, it's a treble clef version of the piece that I just keep in my back pocket in case anyone else panics when they see tenor mm. clef, which I find tenor clef is becoming a little bit passe. Mm, I, I personally, I like it, but that's only because I've learned it and played it for all these Me years. Me too. But a lot of my students don't like it, but yeah. they have to learn it because it will come up in their orchestral repertoire. I know it. Yes, it does. All the time. And it's better to know it and then you're ready for it. Absolutely. Really. Oh, yeah. I say to my students, we it's like knowing three languages, bass clef, tenor clef, and treble clef. We have to know them interchangeably. And I get to the point, and, and I promise them this, this will happen to them if they're devoted students. Mm -hmm. um, you don't even think about what clef you're in. You just mm. see it and, and, and you yes. do it. Mm. And every now and then I'll, I'll be teaching a piece and, you know, I'm talking about a measure in the middle of the line somewhere. I'm like, oh, wait, hold on. What, what clef are we in? Okay, yeah. So when you play that B, uh, but I have to double check it. Um, 
but I do think it's really important to know all three clefs because, mm. oh, it's definitely in the orchestral rep. I remember the first time I, the very first time I saw a tenor clef was in an orchestral piece and I was in youth orchestra. And I think I was in maybe the seventh or the eighth grade. And I looked at my stand partner and I said, oh, I think the composer must want this to sound tight and nervous because he put it in tenor clef. Like I didn't understand it wasn't the composer's doing. And I certainly believed that they were looking for a specific yes. nervous sound because none of us at that point really knew tenor clef very well. <laughs> and I, I've carried that memory with me my whole life remembering, oh, remember the first time I saw tenor clef? Oh yeah, it must have to sound nervous. <laughs> you know, it's funny when, when people say I don't like tenor clef and I would say well mm. life is fraught with difficulties this is one of them just get over <laughs> it but it, you know they come back the next week and over every note there's an E F sharp right I, I, I get rid of those I rub all those out straight away yes and little by little they learn how to to do it I'm, I'm going to write a book about tenor clef because it's really very simple how to learn it you it learn is it, and then to learn, if you learn three notes give or take yes. The landmarks. Yeah, there's from there. Yes. Really I, I do the same thing. Mm. I say to them, okay, first week, here are your landmarks. Your open G, your D, and your octave G. Mm. Exactly. Learn what those look like. Are those the three that you that you use? Yeah, completely. Ah. Yeah, and, and I say to them, memorize these three. And it's like your multiplication tables when you were a kid. Memorize these three. That's all you need. And from there, you can figure out what all the other notes are because you can say, this is a G and it's one ledger line above. Okay, it must be a B. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> if, yeah, if, it's not difficult at all, but it, it's just, I think, giving them the confidence yes. that they can do it. Yep. Yep. But this this was the one piece where I learned tenor clef. And I use tenor clef as well. If I'm transcribing a piece, you know, it might be a violin piece, mm -hmm. and I look at it, and I read the solo violin part as though it's in tenor clef. Yep. So if it's in treble clef, top A, one ledge line, mm -hmm. um, then on bass, that's a G, mm -hmm. because that's in G major, sort of in G major. And I can see if it's going to work on the bass, where it's going to fit. Right. Um, and it's a really good way of doing it. So I, I use tenor clef all the time. The difficulty I find friend of mine, Miroslav Gaidosh, he writes almost everything in tenor clef. Mm -hmm. And then he writes octave sign above it. Oh. And yes. that one is a killer, I have to say. Yeah, that's too much math, I think. Yeah, that 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 one I do struggle with. It's, it's working out what the note is, then the register. But uh, but yeah, but I, I think I, I read it really well. It's it's And once you do, it's easy. As you say, it's like treble and bass. It's not a problem. Right, right. But coming back to the Eccles Sonata, when do you... When do you introduce it? What What's the criteria for you? The criteria for me, I really want the student to be able to get, no, comfortably, I would love for them to be able to get up to that D harmonic on yes. the G string, to be able to, you know, scales, arpeggios, and as we talked about last last episode, getting through some of your books mm. um, so that I can have them really comfortable. And um, I think, honestly, I don't think it takes super long for them to get there, but mm. I want them to be comfortable in the scaling the heights book, mm. which is the the third George. There's two Georges and then scaling the heights, which is the getting from danger zone to thumb position. I want them to have been able to do a few pieces in there, mm. but I don't find that it takes terribly long to get to that point. Yeah, the one thing I like is that second note, the B flat, in the oh, first beautiful. movement. Beautiful, because that one is is like. 
like your first term at school, it's so long. And that's fantastic yes. for bow control. Yes. And if they can do that one, then it's it's easy after that. It's it's really nice. Yep. Yep. Oh, so many times you hear like da 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 and I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> But, you know, I'm picky, but it's okay. Now, what what are the criteria for you when you're teaching it? Um, it's usually for an audition, if I'm honest. It's not a piece mm -hmm. I would usually choose to right. teach. Um, but it, sometimes if they need a Baroque Sonata or they want something a little bit different, then I'll introduce it. Yep. Um, but I, I love the third and fourth movements mm -hmm. because they're not played as much. It's always the first and second. Right. But I, I like I like them because they don't quite work on bass. Mm -hmm. You have to be really inventive with fingerings. And I like the fourth movement because it's quite virtuosic. And it, as you say, it's going in and out of thumb position, which yep. is quite nice. It's, it's yep. really interesting. I also like the third movement because it's quite sonorous. It and that there's a sort of a depth to that movement, which is the first movement is very operatic, very lyrical. But the third movement is completely different. It just has this, this dark feel about it. it and, and when you talk about colour and about line... Um, yeah. these these pieces are really good for that I think yes they are uh, I find that well we were talking about this before we started recording today um I used to teach it a lot when I first started mm. teaching I taught the pieces that I had learned yes and then of course I expanded what I had learned <laughs> and um I taught it a lot when I first was teaching now I do something that could be considered uh, I don't know. Some people might not agree with it. I'll sometimes teach just one movement of it. If I have something that I really feel like the student, like bow control in that mm. first movement or the rhythm or the musical depth of the third movement, there are sometimes things where I'll just teach one movement of it. Mm. Um, I remember though, there was one semester, I think it was my first semester teaching at Berkeley. And I had all my students had their end of semester exams back to back. And <laughs> I very stupidly had a lot of Vivaldi and Eccles Sonata students just coming in and I was like, oh my God, I need to mix it up a little bit. I hadn't really mm. thought about it. Uh, since then, I've taught the Eccles far less. I think probably mm. one movement two or three times since then. But I do find it to be very effective mm. when when I'm teaching it. But I usually use it for a specific reason. I've, I've produced a couple of books of uh, pieces uh, just in bass clef. Mm. unaccompanied bass or bass and piano and i think i'm going to do a new version of the first movement in bass nice. clef so it's oh, down into uh d minor nice. down a fourth um and again it's just in that nice register where they're moving around a little bit yeah uh, but stays in bass clef so i thought that might be a nice addition that uh, would be great yeah, yeah. So I, I've, I've thought about that one that's sort of on the list when i start putting the, the next book of bass clef pieces together because oh, it's, it's great, nice to introduce right? different styles of music Right. Mm. It is. It is. And, you know, like you said, it's a piece that's held up through all these years. So mm. it obviously has merit. Mm. Um, even though I may not teach it quite as frequently as I used to, I still think it's a really lovely piece. It is. It is. I, 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 yeah, there's a reason why it survived. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny that he's really a, a one hit wonder almost, Henry Echel. Right? If, yeah. if it wasn't for this one sonata, he probably wouldn't be remembered at all i think you're right when you google him that's the first thing that comes up is that sonata it's nice including... he's, rem he's remembered isn't it he is it is i mean we should all be so lucky <laughs> exactly exactly 
great. Well, this is wonderful. I think this is a great piece, and and I think people should keep their eyes peeled for a new edition coming out. That's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you everybody for listening to season two of Base Talk with Hagen and Hayes. Like and subscribe, and thank you to our sponsors, GraceGalleryDesign.net, and a special thank you to Leatherwood Bespoke Rosin for sharing with both David and I their newest rosins, which we're really enjoying, and I think we'll be talking about those pretty soon. Um, but thank you so much to Leatherwood. Everybody, Bye. take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.